If you come to Corinth at 8.30, you are used to two pastors sharing the sermon time. Um, it's funny talking to people who aren't at Corinth, especially pastors. They think that's so strange. And the four of us who do this, like, this is so cool. We love doing this. But this actually started with Kevin before he became a pastor at Corinth because he was one of our mission partners with InterVarsity. And Kevin would come to uh, town for, you know, the once a year sort of mission moment. And I forget whether you suggested or I did from the beginning, but one time I said, let's just do a dialogue sermon. So, so I actually went back and I looked. It was June 8th of 2014 and it was your idea. Oh, well, thank you. Yep. I got a little extra credit today, but we love doing this. This might be our last chance to do it. I don't know, but it's been a privilege to do this and share so many aspects of ministry with you. Thank you. Thanks. So we'll get started this morning with this question. Why are you here in person or online? Why are you here this morning? I was thinking, maybe just pause for a second. Really answer that question in your mind. Why are you here? I was thinking there's lots of ways to answer that question, and maybe it's, it's probably likely that it's more than one reason. A couple I came up with, you, you just love getting up early and worshiping God. You grew up in this church, or you've been coming to church for a while, and it's just a good habit that you're in. Maybe your parents made you come. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe your boss made you come. Uh, but whatever the reason, however you're here, uh, we just want to say, we're glad you're here. You are welcome here. And if you don't know why you're here, it's good to stop every once in a while and just say, what are we doing? What are we doing? I think at least for, for us, at least one of our answers has to be, we're here to learn more about Jesus. Whatever else we're doing together as a church, we are learning about Jesus together. Your boss made you come? Yep. Is that, well... Yep. Uh, but you love being here, which yes, is, yeah, yeah. you can be both, right? More than one reason. So one of the reasons we're here is because we're looking for Jesus, right? Especially as believers, we're looking for Jesus. So I'm wondering, where do you look for Jesus usually? Maybe you enjoy nature and you look for Jesus in nature. Maybe it's in God winks or answered prayers. But most of us, most of the time when we're looking for Jesus, we're looking in the Bible. But honestly, most of the time we're looking for Jesus in the Bible, we're looking for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or maybe the letters of Paul. We're going to start a journey over this next few weeks of looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. So we want to be your guides to that process. And it occurred to me that uh, when you trust your guide, then you are more likely to trust that guide to lead you somewhere that you can then trust that as well. I was thinking about uh, the process of finding a, a home in Leland. And while we've been down there, because the sellers didn't want to do some of the things that the inspector identified, we had to do a lot of things. So we needed like an electrician, we needed a roofer, we needed an HVAC, VAC guy, we needed um, a propane guy, and then there was stuff that we wanted to do. We needed to find a painter, we needed to find a pressure washer, we needed a, an attorney at one point, and ultimately this past week when the front door lock code failed, we needed a locksmith. Well, when you need all those places and you don't know anybody in Leland, who do you trust? Well, we have an amazing uh, realtor. Her name is Beth Starkey with Nest Realty. And every single time we needed somebody, Beth, who do you know? And because we trusted Beth, we trusted the, the places that Beth told us to go find reliable contractors. So we're hoping that you trust us as pastors, as guides through the Old Testament, looking for Jesus. 
Now, even though we came up, I forget exactly who or how, we came up with a sermon idea. I think it was Paul, actually, looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. We didn't invent the idea of looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. So you may recall that at the end of both of the New Testament books that Luke wrote, he gives us this moment where he goes like, could you just... What we say, could you give us the manuscript? One of them is with Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he tells these disciples uh, how, he's been, how he can explain everything about himself from Moses and the prophets. Jesus, we'd like to know where you pointed them. And then last week when we got to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is doing the same thing. And he's telling the people under house arrest uh, how he can show them that Jesus is the Messiah from the entire story of the Old Testament. So we wish we knew what they pointed out. Uh, there are some places that we think are a little bit obvious, but we're going to try to be your trusted guides to find Jesus in the Old Testament from now all the way through Christmas. Yeah, so we're going to start like we just read at the very beginning. And Genesis 1, verse 1, makes a stark claim, just a wild claim. It said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a God, and he created all there is. A creator created creation. And that's over and against every other claim about how things came to be. We're saying it was, you are created. Genesis goes on to tell the story of creation, and it talks about how God creates light and day, the cosmos and the earth, and then he fills them with the sun and the moon and the stars and planets and birds and fish and whales and animals, and then he has this great idea. Verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. It starts like this, let us. Who's us? Who is us? We're here at the beginning. There is nothing else. Maybe. We actually believe there is an us. One of the commentaries we read this week said it very simply, the most likely answer of who God is talking to is himself. What scripture will reveal, starting in Genesis all the way to the end, is that God has existed in loving community, Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, Jesus, and Spirit, since the very beginning. That's how things have always been. So right here, if we're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, we start right here with this hint, let us. Jesus was there at creation. And not just there at creation, but he, with the Father and the Son, made everything there is. He made human beings in his image and likeness. He created humans. He created you. And not just that he created us, but he created us in the image and likeness of himself. Now, what does that mean? Well, it turns out when you get into the language of image and likeness, what does that mean? You end up with bigger questions, like why is there anything? Why do people exist? Before we asked, why are you here? Meaning here or online. But when we start looking at this language from Genesis 1, we start asking, why are you here? But in a big way. We zoomed out kind of a meta way. Why do I exist? There are lots of ways to answer the image and likeness. What does it mean? But one of the Bible study tools that is super helpful is when you don't know what something means, you look nearby in Scripture. Is there a place in Scripture that uses the language of likeness and image that can help us understand what it means? And there is. There's actually only one 
Only one other place in scripture is this language, image and likeness used, and it is in Genesis 5, 3. This is what it says. When Adam had lived 130 years, so Leah is almost there, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Adam has a son in his likeness and image. Whatever else likeness and image means, this is family language. When God was making human beings, he was making a family. To be created in the image and likeness of God is to be God's children. Jesus created us to be his family. But not just to be his family. The NLT, the New Living Translation, does such an amazing job. It says, um, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Human beings were made to be like God. He didn't just make family. He made, it li- made little versions of himself. If you have met my wife and my daughter, you will find out my wife made a little version of herself. Well, that is what God was doing in us. Over and against the other ancient Near East kind of creation stories where God needed servants to make them food or they need cosmic slaves. It wasn't like that. We find out that God made a family to be like him and to rule. One of the other aspects of this you pointed out to me, Kevin, this week is that in ancient times, a king would put up statues or mint coins with his image so that everywhere you went in the kingdom, the king's likeness is represented. Let me remind you whose this is. And again, so he created us to be family, but he created us so that everywhere people look, there's something of God there. There's a little God there, the way the psalmist actually puts it, which is fascinating. So we represent him. There's so much in this text to unpack uh, the beauty and wonder of the world. It's fascinating how Genesis condenses all of this into one chapter, how God creates living things. Uh, I, I had to Google, how many species of life are there on the earth, meaning plants and animals. National Geographic says 8.7 million species, that is categories of life. Uh, Compare that to Venus or Mars, like how many species of life? When people say like, we think we might have found life on Mars, what did you find? Like maybe the possibility of one small bacteria, that's not Earth. 8.7 million species of life, out of which they say about 1.2 million have been identified, and most of those are species of insects. Now there's a comforting thought for you. But just imagine for a moment, sit with the idea that God created this incredible world of diversity of life, and then what he says to the human beings is you are to rule over it, you are to have dominion over it, you are to be stewards of this that I've created for you. So what does that mean? What kind of responsibility does that give to us? I've been learning a little bit more about dominion uh, by losing it. All right, so I'm actually losing my power around here. I don't know if you know that. Like I'm a couple of months away from retirement, but I'm in charge of fewer and fewer things. They tell me what I'm going to preach on. They do the staff meetings. They arrange things without me, which is perfectly fine with me. It's part of this natural process. But I've also been losing dominion at home because I had surgery a few weeks ago, and uh, my wife is making sure that I'm well taken care of. Now, I did have one moment that I texted a picture to my kids. It was the Sunday after surgery, it was time to put out the trash cans. It's a job that I usually do. And I texted the following picture to to my kids, like, I've now become the supervisor. (laughs) 
Well, at any rate, that's, you know, as I said, she's really been supervising me, making sure that I'm well taken care of. So during this time of recovery, I've been reading or listening to an amazing book. It's uh, by a man named Joel Solitude, who's a farmer in Virginia, and it's called The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. This guy really likes pigs. He really likes chickens, and he doesn't like the way our food system treats either one of them to feed us. And that, among a lot of other things, like he's really talking about how we take care of creation. The person who recommended this book to me was Brian Eno. And one of the recent quotes by Brian Eno is he says, I'm a Republican tree hugger. Uh, Those phrases don't usually go together. But the conversation was in the context of the memorial garden out there, which we're getting ready to expand, and some trees are going to need to come out. And I'm saying, Brian, you know, like, people don't like to see trees come out. He said, well, I'm a Republican tree hugger. I'll make sure the trees are taken care of, the property is taken care of. And Brian does things like that. He really does care for creation. So he sends me this book. And for the most part, I love the book. I will say I don't love all of it, and I think the writer probably goes a little bit too far in his application of these principles. But what I love about him is he's a King James-loving, evangelical, if not fundamentalist, Bible lover and believer who says when he talks about creation that he realizes that he sounds a whole lot more like, what was the phrase I forget where I saw? Oh, there it is. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, It makes him sound like a tree-hugging, cosmic, worshiping, gay-promoting, big government evolutionist. So he, but he says like, this comes out of Genesis 1. We are supposed to take care of the earth. God did not give creation to human beings to rule over for our profit, to exercise our greed, to destroy the gift that God gave to us. And one of the, one of the requirements for Bible-believing Christians is to go back to this very first mandate that God gave to human beings. I'm allowing you to rule over, to steward, to shepherd my creation, to take care of it, not to use it for your own profit and your own means. So the Salatin does a great job of saying this is all rooted in what it means to be a faithful believer. We need to take care of what God has given to us. So again, we're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. How do we connect this to Jesus? Salatin points out for me that when Jesus talks about creation, it's always with deep respect. Jesus loves lilies and birds and flowers. And when he, uh, he tells stories like the, the pictures uh, illustrated in the stained glass window in my office of the, the sower. And every time Jesus speaks about nature, about the natural world, he does it with deep respect and care. But also, Jesus models something else and teaches something else that I find back in Genesis chapter 1. And that is that Jesus teaches us what it means to be a servant leader, a ruler who cares and stewards. That having power, having authority, having control is not about abusing or using uh, or lording it over others. It's actually being a steward. So Jesus says, when you're put in charge, you are to be the greatest among you like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. So this idea that we are mandated from the beginning to care for God's creation is actually setting us up for a powerful teaching of Jesus about servant leadership. Right. And one of the things that this passage connected for me is that Jesus coming as a teacher, as a rabbi with disciples, was not an accident. If you remember, the, to be a disciple 
was to organize your life around three goals. To be a disciple of someone was to organize your life around three goals, which was to be with your rabbi, to become like your rabbi from the inside out, and to do what they would do if they were you. So to become like them, uh, or to be with them, to become like them, to do what they would do. Now here's the thing. This is the same goal God has for us in creation. He created us to be with him, to be his family, to... Uh, to do what he would do on earth, to rule, to be like him. It wasn't an accident that Jesus came as a rabbi. His goal in his coming uh, kind of incarnation was the same as at creation, to make people to be like him. This is the greatest invitation in human history. When we say yes to becoming like Jesus, we are saying yes to become what we were always made to be. To be like Jesus is what we were made to be. Second, God thinks creation is very good. Genesis 1.31. God loves the world. This may be the most fundamental, basic, core idea in all of Christianity and in the Bible. And it was the first thing I learned about God when I was a kid. It was in the first song I ever learned to sing, Jesus Loves Me. It, and it, it's so basic, and yet it still has the power to transform young kids and old adults. Sometimes when we talk about Jesus, though, we miss it. We miss it in church. Sometimes when we talk about the goodness of Jesus, we, we talk about as if the main thing Jesus did was to get rid of the problem of sin. And sin is a problem. But there's something much bigger going on than just sin. It is not that human beings are problems that God needs to solve. How can God fix this problem that he has, which are human beings? Human beings are not problems to solve. We are children that are in need of a rescue. We are not problems for God. We are children. That is why he comes to rescue, to restore, to buy back, to redeem who uh, he loves. We are people made for an extravagant purpose to be with God, to be like him, uh, to do what he would do. See, Jesus created us. He created you to be his family, to be like him, to rule with him, and he loves you. He loves you. So then we get to one more aspect of this text, and we deliberately took our reading into chapter 2 with this verse that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested. This is a beautiful text, although it is one that has caused a lot of uh, controversy among Christians in particular since the time of Jesus. And honestly, I don't want to delve in too much into the controversy, in part because we'd just be talking about my sins in terms of uh, the Sabbath. I have not been one who taught or modeled Sabbath well. Uh, Kevin does such a better job than I have in my whole ministry in terms of setting aside that time with God and time with the family one day a week. But uh, So I don't want to go too far down that. I want to go in a slightly different direction because I think at this point in the story, we're also setting up for Jesus in a very powerful and meaningful way. And what Jesus does with this is he doesn't come up, he, he actually um, resists all of the rules and regulations, the layers and even the debates that have come up over the Sabbath, but he doesn't, he doesn't d d uh, diminish or dismiss the Sabbath either. And what we learn from Jesus, particularly as this unfolds in the New Testament, is that Jesus himself is Sabbath. Jesus is rest. And the writer of Hebrews says, 
you know, the whole point of this story is that you would learn to rest in what Jesus has done for you, and out of that rest, then, you would work. Because of rest, we can work. And this is a, this is a passage about the rhythm of life, that it does require and obligate and give us the privilege of laboring with God and for God, but it's within a rhythm that also creates rest. And it's out of this rest of being loved and known and forgiven and graced that then we can respond in obedience and work. So it's really a, a beautiful text that he gives us. So again, the way Jesus says this is when he says to people in Matthew chapter 11 who are following him, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants to be your soul's recliner, your sofa, your serta. He wants to be the place where you are most comfortable, where you know who you are in him and you can rest in him. So stop trying so hard to make life work. Stop trying to do anything except to hold on to Jesus because the more we trust, the more we rest. And the more we rest, the more we respond to Jesus and it becomes a life of joy and gratitude and hope and obedience and relationship. Every restful moment of body and soul points us back to Jesus who in turn points us back to Genesis chapter 2. This is where it all began, the rest. As we finish up, we see at the end of our kind of creation account, God enjoying his creation. So it's thinking about application for us. How do we respond to finding out that Jesus created us and finding Jesus in the Old Testament? And I thought this week we could intentionally try to enjoy creation just like Jesus did. So I want maybe, I have three invitations that'll be up on the screen. Um, these are just a few. There are dozens uh, of different things we can do to enjoy creation. The first one is to pray daily this week for awe and wonder. It's been almost 20 years since I read the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning, and I still remember this part. We get so preoccupied with ourselves, the words we speak, the plans and projects we conceive, that we become immune to the glory of creation. We barely notice the cloud passing over the moon or the dewdrops cling to the rose leaves. The ice on the pond comes and goes. The wild blackberries ripen and wither. The blackbird nests outside our bedroom window. We don't see her. We grow complacent and lead practical lives. We miss the experience of awe, reverence, and wonder. And that's true for me. I can get very busy and lead a very practical life and become immune to the glory of creation. But I, I don't want to live that way. And we don't have to live that way because wonder is not far away. It is right there available to me and to you. So we can pray for wonder. God, would you give us wonder? Would you share with us what we're missing? The second is to eat food you love to eat. So one of the parts of the story is God gives fruit from all the fruit bearing trees and there are thousands of different kinds. There's this extravagant, eat food you love to eat and thank God for it. Something that may be really helpful if you want. Sometimes I find it hard to pray before a meal. I'm so hungry. I don't feel particularly grateful. I'm like, let's get this prayer thing going. It may help you to take a bite of your food first. Take it. And then, of course, you might think, 
God, thank you. I was hungry. This is great. I think Thanksgiving can often come after the first bite than before the first bite. Uh, you can, this other one, read Colossians 1, 15 through 17. We didn't have time to get into that this morning. But if you could read it and try and believe it. This is Paul telling that Jesus created all things, that all things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. The idea is that if you're still here, Jesus has not forgotten you. If you're still here, Jesus is holding you together. And there's so many other ways. Take a walk. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, thank you, God. Scroll through pictures of your family or spend time with people you love and just go, God, I'm so glad you made that person. To close, uh, back to our opening question. Why are you here? Here is your answer. Here is my answer. You are here because Jesus created you to be his family to be like him, to rule with him, and he loves you. He always has, and he always will. I just have this, um, it was a great closing point, but I got stuck on the second of the application. Yep. I'm thinking that you're gonna come get, gather all the family around for dinner, your kids are gonna all start eating, and they're gonna go like, Daddy, that's what you told us yep. to do, you told us to eat first, so Ruined. it's on him, Christy, so. I can't tell if they're listening. Yeah, they're going to say, I was listening to the sermon. So let's pray together. God, we live in an amazing, wonderful world. Forgive us for the times we take uh, amazing parts of Scripture like Genesis 1 and 2 and we spend our time arguing over things instead of just basking in the wonder of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all through eternity and always intent on creating us and then redeeming us. What an amazing thing it is to be human, to be alive with wonder and response, and then to be claimed by you. We thank you. And we thank you for the incredible responsibility you have entrusted to us to take care of this world. We are to rule and dominion and care for it. And we thank you that all of this, all of this points so directly to Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, fully God, fully human. We thank you that you have come to us in him and made possible that we would live a life not only uh, that, uh, w that happened before the fall, but one even better all through eternity with you and for one another. We are filled with gratitude today. We thank you and pray that you would help us to respond to your word today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.